Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. In March this year, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a Parents' Bill of Rights intended to reform American public schools. Perhaps you've heard about it. Essentially, this bill follows states like Florida that have also sought to give parents more control. The bill has headed to the Senate for consideration, but it's highly unlikely that the Democratic-controlled chamber will take up the measure, with House Democrats dubbing the bill Politics Over Parents Act. Okay, so just what's in this bill? Well, the measure would require schools to publish their curricula publicly. It would mandate that parents be allowed to meet with their children's teachers, okay? And it also requires that schools give information to parents when violence occurs on school grounds. Also, it would demand that parents receive a list of books and reading materials accessible at the school library and give parents a say when schools are crafting or updating their policies and procedures for student privacy, among other tenets. And as usual, the basic premise of this bill has been lost in an explosion of extremist opinions, so everyone is angry. Well, here's the basic question, though, really. Should the federal government get involved at all? Throughout Ronald Reagan's speeches about education, the importance of local control and the dangers of interference by the federal government is a consistent theme. So what would he think about the federal government intervening? In this podcast, we'll hear how our 40th president felt about education. First, let's listen to a radio address that Ronald Reagan delivered in 1976, almost 50 years ago. And in the second half, we'll get his presidential views on the subject, particularly as it pertains to a national report on education, along with a little on federal spending, of course. So let's begin in 1976. Let's listen. Readin' and writing and arithmetic is a fine old song, but I'm afraid its lyrics are as out of date as a nickel cigar. I'll be right back. I've spoken before about the decline in quality of public school education as evidenced by college entrance exams over the last 20 years. Well, just recently, I read in Washington, D.C. newspapers about one of the highest-ranking graduates of a D.C. high school, valedictorian of his class, who couldn't get a high enough mark on the standard entrance exams to get into George Washington University. The dean of the university described the young man as having been conned into believing he'd had an education. But it took the news of an interview on a St. Louis TV station to get me back on this subject again. They interviewed a product of the St. Louis public school system, a young man 20 years of age who had gone from kindergarten through grade 12 and had his high school diploma to prove it. He is a functional illiterate, unable to read or write, and is presently enrolled in an adult remedial reading program. Now, lest you think he's exceptional, possibly handicapped in some way, let me state for the record he is not mentally retarded, neither is he stupid. He's just plain untaught. The adult center where he's at last being taught to read says he has plenty of company in that one metropolitan area alone. Education is compulsory in our land of the free. You can't decide that you'll do without. And if you try, the law will be knocking on your door asking why isn't Johnny in school where he belongs. All right, then. But what is our response if little Johnny is in school where he belongs and all that's required of him is his physical presence? 
If he sits in his assigned seat five days a week for nine months, he'll be passed and promoted to the next higher grade. When I was governor, a black mother, during the height of the controversy over desegregation in the schools, told me that wasn't nearly as important to her as some of the educational fraternity would have us believe. She said, never mind moving them around to a different school, just teach them where they are. And then she made this request, stop promoting my son to the next grade just because he's come to the end of the year. Make him stay in the grade he's in until he's learned what he's supposed to know. I'm afraid I thought she was exaggerating when she added, one day they'll hand him a diploma and he won't be able to read it. But what happens to a young man or woman who dons cap and gown, is handed a diploma as proud parents and friends applaud, who believes he's qualified to go into the job market and learns he can't even fill out the application for a job? There have been great innovations in education, and we're told the old-fashioned methods, phonics as the way to learn to read, for example, are no longer approved by educators. Well, let them answer one question. It is acknowledged that we have added more to man's knowledge in the last 25 years than in all the previous history of man. Those who did this were brought up in that earlier, now outmoded school system. Surely it must have been doing something right. This is Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening. More about education and whether or not additional government spending makes a difference. We'll be right back. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. The year is 1983. Ronald Reagan, remember, was governor of California for eight years, and at this point, now president for two and a half. So, you could say he's had a bit of experience dealing with issues of education. Federally, the budget for education in 1982 was $15.3 billion. It was up almost a billion from the previous year. So the president took to the radio waves for several reasons, actually. He wanted to comment on the results released from his National Commission on Excellence in Education. Perhaps you don't recall the commission was created in 1981. We'll tell you a little about it. It was tasked with examining the quality of education in the United States and then asked to make a report to the nation and to the president within 18 months of its first meeting. So what did the commission report? Well, it said we are a nation at risk. Our once unchallenged preeminence in commerce, industry, science, and technological innovation was being overtaken by competitors throughout the world. So let's listen to the president's reaction. We'll listen to the first half of this radio address. Let's listen. My fellow Americans, ever since our Commission on Excellence in Education came forth with its findings, you, the taxpaying citizens of this country, have been treated to a noisy debate about what to do. First, the Commission report made the point that, on the average, educational quality had deteriorated in recent years. Now, make sure you remember that term, on the average. 
Admittedly, there are schools, school districts, and even some parts of individual schools that have managed to maintain a high level of quality. Then the Commission pointed out a number of remedies which, if employed, would bring the average level up to the standard our children are entitled to. Many of the remedies would call for no increase in spending. Some, admittedly, would shift funding from less important things to things of greater educational value, and here and there there might be a need for more money. Basically, however, the Commission's thrust was one of making better use of resources we already have. All of what I've just pointed out was lost, however, in an explosion of voices. There were special interest voices that saw a chance to get more money for their particular cause. There were political voices that saw a campaign horse to ride. And there was demagoguery to help raise the noise level. In making the report public and discussing the matter of education costs, I was accused of being, quote, grotesquely inaccurate and outrageous, unquote. This seems to have been prompted by a statement that more was being spent on education than on national defense. I can only explain their hysteria by assuming that they were comparing federal spending on education to federal spending on defense. That, of course, is ridiculous. The federal government bears overwhelming responsibility for national defense, but it provides less than 10% of all education costs, which are and always have been a responsibility of the state and local governments. Since this hassle won't die down in 15 minutes, I thought you might like some real figures from the U.S. Department of Education. In the 82-83 school year, government at all levels spent $215.3 billion on education. The 1983 defense spending is $214.8 billion. Actually, that $215 billion for education doesn't include Department of Defense spending for remedial education or private corporation spending on employee education, all of which is estimated to be about $30 billion or more. Nor does it include what parents spend on books, etc. One of the noisemakers wants the federal government to add $11 billion to federal education spending. Another demands $14 billion, and most of them accuse us of whacking the budget down to a starvation level. The facts are the federal budget for education in 1980 was $14.1 billion. In 1981, which was still not our budget, it was 14.8. Our first appropriation, the one for 1982, held the level for education at $14.8 billion, the same as in 1981. This year, we'll spend about $15.3 billion. Now, these are a lot of figures to absorb when you can only hear them and not see them. Let me see if I can simplify things. The, the cost per pupil has nearly doubled, up 183.2% in 10 years. In the same 10 years, the number of pupils has dropped by 14%. Some distinguished members of Congress, I'll be kind and not name them, took me on for pointing out that the decline in educational quality seems to have begun shortly after the federal government started providing that less than 10% of the funding. What I had in mind was that the federal government began regulating and kibitzing a lot more than 10%, and maybe that contributed to the decline. Yes, the president loved numbers and data. <laughs> maybe you know that Mike Deaver once said the president never met a statistic he didn't like. <laughs> so bear with us. He's going to directly correlate federal spending to education. And yes, hang in there, lots of data, but he does get to the basic recommendations of the commission. Let's listen. Now hang on, I have to resort to some numbers again. The federal funding boom began in 1960. 
The teacher-pupil ratio went from one teacher to 26 pupils, then to one teacher to 19 pupils in 1980. But the scholastic aptitude test scores of college-bound high school graduates dropped in that same period from 975 to 890. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but at least it raises a question as to whether more money is the, well, dare I use the term, quick fix for poor quality education. Already a great many educators and school boards and governors and state legislators who've read the commission's report are enthusiastically moving to implement it. The commission urged that we return to basics as requirements for a high school diploma, four years of required English, increase the number of years of required mathematics and science, eliminate some of the frill, the SNAP courses so tempting to students when there are few, if any, compulsory courses, make history a required course, and the same for languages for the college bound, require more homework. These were a few of the commission's recommendations. Yes, they talked of something that could translate into more money, better pay for better teachers to attract the brightest and the best to choose teaching as a career. Do what is done in every other profession and business. Offer merit pay raises for those who earn and deserve them. The commission gave us a course to follow. It leads to better education for our sons and daughters. Let's ignore the noisemakers and set sail. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. And today... Well, we know kids aren't learning and have fallen behind many other countries in basic skills, and not entirely because of closed schools during COVID, although we know that didn't help. Who's responsible for the so-called culture wars? This is a major reason the school choice movement and homeschooling are rapidly growing. COVID helped parents see what was being taught in their child's public school. Many reacted by pulling them out and sending them to private schools or homeschooling them. You decide what Ronald Reagan would think. And thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast, featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.